Well, this is an article that appeared this month in an online publication called The Christian News, and it says this, <clears throat> a number of Roman Catholic dioceses nationwide and globally have been consecrating themselves to the Immaculate Heart of Mary throughout 2017. Now, you say, what does it mean, consecrated? If you look up the word consecrated, it means making a conscious, willing decision to dedicate your soul, mind, heart, and body to. Um, so many uh, dioceses, which is uh, geographical groupings of Catholic churches, are devoting themselves, heart, soul, mind, body, to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, The consecrations are being conducted as 2017 marks the 100th year since the purported 1917 apparitions of Mary, uh, appearances of Mary, to child shepherds in Fatima, Portugal. The apparitions were uh, stated to have taken place on the 13th of each month over a six-month period. Period. Now, what did Mary say to these children? God desires to establish in the world devotion to my immaculate heart, Mary was quoted as stating during one of the appearances to the children. To whomever embraces this devotion, I promise salvation. Okay. To whomever embraces this devotion, to her, I promise salvation. These souls shall be dear to God as flowers placed by me to adorn his throne. The Diocese of Saint Santa Rosa, California, a spokesman says, it is an act of trust in the love God has for us and in the love our Blessed Mother has for us. It continues, we entrust ourselves to her maternal care, with profound confidence and love, we trust that having given over everything we have and are to her protection and even her dominion, we then rely on her to distribute merits and graces where they are most needed. We entrust our all to you, and you will distribute merit and grace where you see fit. On October 13th, so this was Friday, Friday the 13th, two days ago, the date of the last Fatima apparition, Donald Wuerl, the Roman Catholic Archbishop of Washington, plans to consecrate the entire United States to Mary at the Basilica of the National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception. So the entire United States, I don't know if that includes Protestants or just Catholics, but has been... um, Consecrated to Mary. Okay? Now, while not all Roman Catholics buy into the whole Fatima thing where Mary supposedly appeared, there are four Marian dogmas that every Roman Catholic is required to officially believe. And here are the four dogmas that... um, She is the mother of God, which technically we don't have a problem with, right? If Jesus is God and she's the mother of Jesus, you can do the logic. Where that gets mixed up is when we impose upon her 
godlike divine qualities like praying to her and dispensing merits and graces. Okay? Catholics are also required to believe in the perpetual virginity of Mary, that Mary remained a virgin her whole life, even though Mark 6, 3 names the four brothers of Jesus, James, Joes, Jude, and Simon. Okay? The Immaculate Conception. Now, a lot of people hear that term and they think of, um, the, they say, oh, well, yeah, we believe Jesus was conceived immaculately. Now, this is not about Jesus's conception. This is about Mary's conception, that she was conceived sinless and lived a sinless life. And that was uh, officially stated in 1854. And in 1950, this is the final dogma, the assumption of Mary, that Mary was taken bodily into heaven. You know, as Jesus ascended into heaven, Mary also bodily ascended into heaven. Now, these are dogmas, which means it is required and essential teaching that must be believed by all Roman Catholics. So you, you, if you're Catholic, you have to believe this. Okay? Now, y'all, as good Protestants, are saying, what? Where is that in the Bible? And that's why I say the assumption is quite an assumption. Um, but you say it's nowhere in the Bible. And by the way, this whole idea of Mary ascending into heaven, it's not even found in early tradition either. The first time it even shows up is about 700 A.D. So it's not in tradition, early tradition, and it's not in the Bible, but you must believe it. So how would a Roman Catholic respond? They would say, well, there you go, you Protestants, with your Bible alone stuff. We, Roman Catholics, have three sources of authority. The sacred Bible, sacred tradition, and the teaching authority of the church. So why are you narrowing yourselves to the Bible alone? So, while... This month marks the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. A lot of people want to say, well, that was so long ago. We've moved beyond that. Aren't we all on the same page? No. We run headlong into the very same issue that Martin Luther ran into back in his day. Really, the issue is that of authority. Where do we look for the final authority on issues like this, okay? Now, October 2017 is the 100th anniversary of Mary's supposed appearing at Fatima, and October 2017 is the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. Interesting timing that both of them fall on this month. So here's what I want to do. I want to uh, give you a little history to begin with, and we're going to look at what the Scripture has to say, and we're going to spend a, at least a couple weeks on the Protestant Reformation. So let's learn a little bit about Martin Luther. 
Oh, by the way, okay, so Luther was born in 1483, okay, 1483. When he was nine, a guy named Christopher Columbus discovered America. So the world doubled in size when Martin Luther was nine. Luther was studying to be a lawyer, and as he was walking home one night, he was almost hit by lightning, and he fell to the ground, and he prayed to St. Anne. If she would deliver him, he would become a monk. So he entered the monastery much to the disappointment of his father. He became a scrupulous monk who took the sacramental system very seriously. In fact, we were told that sometimes he would spend six hours a day in the confessional booth confessing the sins from the day before. Okay? While Luther is a monk and a priest, the Pope was Leo X. He needed to complete the building of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. So to help fund the building, he issued indulgences. What's an indulgence? Well, the idea is this. In heaven, there's this bank account with excess merit of the saints. Okay? So there's the ledgers in heaven, and, and the saints have put excess merit in there. And the church is the distributor of that excess merit. And you could buy, for money, an indulgence, a piece of paper that says you got that merit. Now, there was a thing called a plenary indulgence, which is your, all your sins are wiped clean. It's a re- return to a state of innocence. So... Pope Leo issued plenary indulgences to build St. Peter's. So when people go there and they go, oh, this is such a beautiful building, it's snake oil. It's built on lying to people about their eternal salvation. So from a real shallow surfacey point of view, it looks beautiful. Not when my relatives were deceived about their salvation. I don't see it that beautiful. You could spring a soul from purgatory. Now, purgatory is not hell. It's an intermediate state where when you die, you go and you have to atone or pay for uh, the temporal punishments of your sins. So you could get yourself out or you could get a relative out of purgatory. There was a seller of indulgences who went around Germany named Tetzel, Johann Tetzel, and he actually had quite a marketing scheme. He had a little little ditty where he said, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Who would like to get grandma out of purgatory? Just pay up. Ding! There's her soul. I mean, so they they made lots of money, and they were building St. Peter's. Well, Luther, a monk, 
in Wittenberg, Germany, said, forget this. This is crazy. So, so here's Germany. I, I always like to, when we talk about cities, to identify them. So here's Wittenberg, right? And so what he does is he writes 95 objections, um, initially just dealing with the issue of indulgences and their abuse. And he nails them to the door of the Wittenberg church. Now, the presenting issue for Luther were indulgences. But very quickly, the bigger issue became authority. Who do you think you are, Luther, to challenge the authority of the Pope and the whole papal system? Tetzel, who was selling the indulgences, called for Luther to be burned at the stake as a heretic. And I think we just need to pause right now and realize that we live in a different age. I mean, you can, you can have a differing opinion. You can put it out on Facebook. You can write a blog you, um, without any fear. But he objects to this obvious, obvious abuse, and an official calls for him to be burnt at the stake. Sylvester Priares wrote a book called Dialogue Concerning the Power of the Pope. He heard about Luther, so he wrote a book. And he said, He who does not accept the doctrine of the Church of Rome and the pontiff, the Pope of Rome, as an infallible rule of faith from which the Holy Scriptures too draw their strength and authority is a heretic. So you see the issue is becoming authority. Does the Pope have authority? What was Luther's response to Sylvester? Luther wrote, Like an insidious devil, you pervert the scriptures. Game on. Now, he is referring to the the Pope as infallible. The doctrine of the infallibility of the Pope did not become official until the First Vatican Council, 1870, okay? But there were those, even in the time of Luther, who were pushing for it and who believed in it. So Luther's response surfaces the real issue. Do the Pope and the councils stand over the Scriptures Or do the scriptures stand over the Pope and the councils? Okay. So at the center of the issue of the Reformation stood the question of scripture. Is it the sole authority? Okay. Sola scriptura. Now, understand this. Sola scriptura doesn't mean there are no other authorities. It means there is only one ultimate authority. Since Scripture is the only thing said to be inspired by God, the only thing God breathed, sola scriptura means that Scripture is the only final, infallible 
authority. That's the issue. In 1518, Luther was called to debate this issue in Augsburg, so we're going to the south of Germany, with Cardinal Cajetan. So here's a little wood carving of uh, Cajetan and Luther having a discussion. The more Cajetan insisted on the authority of the Pope, the more Luther insisted on the authority of the Scriptures. So the issues were being defined. In 1519, Luther was called to Leipzig, which is right near Wittenberg, to debate Johann von Eck. So here's a a drawing of uh, Eck versus Luther. I looked at this drawing. This is a dog right here. And this is like a jester, a court jester. But, uh, so here's a, uh, a, an artist's rendition of Eck versus Luther. Eck says, Scripture receives its authority from the Pope. Luther says, a schoolboy with Scripture in his hand is better fortified than the Pope. So then Eck says... I see that you are following the condemned and pestiferous errors of John Wycliffe, who said it is not necessary for salvation to believe that the Roman church is above all others, and you are espousing the pestilent errors of John Huss, who claimed that Peter neither was nor is the head of the Holy Catholic Church. Huss, a hundred years earlier, was burned at the stake. And his primary thing was he was saying that the Pope, Peter, Peter was not the uh, first Pope, and the Pope now is not the head of the church. Okay? Um, at first, Luther denied being in line with Huss, but during a break, he looked into who Huss was and what he taught, and he discovered and said, yep, I am a Hussite. But do you realize what he was doing? By identifying with the guy they burnt at the stake, he was putting his own life on the line. This was a courageous thing to do. So then Heck called Luther heretical, erroneous, blasphemous, presumptuous, seditious, and offensive to pious ears. But other than that, he's a great guy. Right? So then they got into the issue of uh, okay, so, so, so understand here, um, Protestants are saying Scripture alone is the final authority. Rome is saying it's Scripture and tradition, and then the tradition comes from um, tradition that develops over time and the teaching authority of the church. Now, the teaching authority of the church involves the Pope and various councils, okay? So the issue of the councils and popes came up, and Luther said this. Councils have contradicted each other, for the recent Lateran Council has reversed the claim of the councils of Constance and Basil that a council is above a pope. Now, 
You could study that sentence for a long time. But here's what he's saying. I am naming actual councils that reversed themselves, which shows a contradiction. And the issue was, is the Pope over the council? And then they switched and said, the councils are over the Pope. So the, 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 the councils themselves contradict, and what do they contradict over? The authority of the Pope to a council. Luther says a simple layman armed with scripture is able to believe above a pope or a council without it. As for the pope's decretal on indulgences, I say that neither the church nor the pope can establish articles of faith. These must come from the scripture. For the sake of scripture, we should reject pope and councils. Whoa. Word gets to the pope in Rome. And in 1520, Pope Leo X calls Luther's teaching a poisonous virus. And he demands, he sends a bull, a bull, not a bull with horns, but a bull is an edict to Luther, giving him 60 days to recant or be excommunicated. And in this bull, the Pope says, Luther is a wild boar ravaging God's vineyard, a pestiferous, they love that word, pestiferous, a pestiferous virus, as well as a serpent creeping through the Lord's field, and he must be stopped. Right? So Luther's got 60 days <clears throat> to recant, and during that time, he writes three tracts. One is called To the Christian Nobility of the German Nation, and in it, he rejected papal infallibility and claimed that the Pope must answer to Scripture. Then he wrote the Babylonian captivity of the church. And here's the heart now. So, so uh, the first issue is indulgences. That surfaces the question of authority. And now, as Luther is studying, he's going to raise the question of salvation. And he says, the gift of righteousness is received by faith alone, and therefore Rome is an error to claim that divine grace comes only through the priest's distribution of the sacraments. You are saved by faith alone, not by Rome's sacramental system. And then he wrote a third tract, The Freedom of the Christian, where he said, good works do not merit righteousness, but are the fruit that come from being declared righteous. 60 days are up. Luther builds a bonfire and publicly burns the Pope's bull. Luther is excommunicated and he is summoned to stand before Charles V, the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, at the Council of Worms. Worms. Okay. It's, it's really called the Diet of Worms, which is very disgusting, right? Um, so Luther is called to stand before the emperor. Here's Eck. Um, and he is told, we'll give you another chance to recant of your writings. He takes a day, and he comes back, and here's his famous quote. Unless I'm convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either the pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. 
I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. And it's debated whether he said, here I stand, I can do no other. But he did say, may God help me. Amen. He then got on his horse or whatever, however he got there to go home. Um, Question is, would he survive that trip home? He was kidnapped by friends and hidden in a castle where he translated the Greek New Testament into German to get the word out to the common people. That's what happened 500 years ago. the, the pounding of the, the 95 Theses on the door happened on Halloween, uh, October 31st, 1517. So now, here's the issue that still is around today. What's the final authority? Scripture alone or Scripture and tradition? Now, again, people say, oh, come on, this was 500 years ago. Can't we all just get along? Well, let me, uh, just to be clear, let me show you that this is still the issue today. At Vatican II, by the way, Vatican II was called in 1962. Guess who was born in 1962? Me, okay? <laughs> uh, so the, they, call, they call this council... And <laughs> <laughs> if I wasn't born, they wouldn't have had it, right? They have, so they call the council, and a lot of people think Vatican II changed everything and everything is now the same as Protestants. No. Um, here's the dogmatic constitution on divine revelation, de verbum, solemnly promulgated by His Holiness, Pope Paul the 11th on November 18th, and Vatican 6th, 9th. Oh, well, but we got to get them right. Okay. Okay. Paul VI on November 18, 1965. So Vatican II lasted several years. All right, so here's what they teach about tradition and Scripture. Both sacred tradition and sacred Scripture are to be accepted and venerated with the same sense of loyalty and reverence. Okay? But the task of authentically interpreting the Word of God, whether written or handed on, has been entrusted exclusively to the living teaching office of the church. It is clear, therefore, that sacred tradition, sacred scripture, and the teaching authority of the church in accord with God's most wise design are so linked and joined together that one cannot stand without the others. And that all together, and each in its own way, under the action of the one Holy Spirit, contribute effectively to the salvation of souls. So you Protestants who go by sola scriptura, sola scriptura can't stand on its own. You need scripture, tradition, and and the teaching authority of the church, the magisterium. Those three are equal. So now, here's the deal. Let's say you have a a Roman Catholic friend, and you debate an issue. And you open your Bible and you say, well, look, right there it says this. They're going to say, well, that's nice, 
But we go not just by that, but by what the church officially teaches. So now, before you can argue the issue, you now have to step back and argue what you call epistemology. Epistemology is the philosophy of knowledge. What is the ultimate source of knowledge? So I, I always like to picture it this way. Let's say you come over to my house and we're playing Monopoly and a, a, a dispute breaks out and we say, well, let's check the rules. And we take up the, the box top and on, in the box are the rules. And you say, see, right there, it says this. And I say, well, that's nice that it says this, but here at the Smith house, and I open a drawer and I pull out a piece of paper, we have home rules. So now, before we can debate the rule, we have to debate the source of authority. Do we just go by the box, or do we go by the box and the home rules? Now, while Rome would say that these are three equal sources of authority, philosophically, it is impossible for there to be multiple ultimates. If, there can't be multiple ultimates. Like the Supreme Court. You have all these courts throughout the land, but the final authority is the Supreme Court. If you, you, don't, if you have three ultimates, guess what? One will always overpower the others. And Vatican II says the authority to interpret... Scripture lies with who? The church. So in reality, the magisterium is over Scripture and tradition. That would be like, let's say, let's say we're doing the monopoly thing. We pull out the box and the home rules, and you say, okay, let's go by those. And then a dispute breaks out, even over how to interpret that, and then I say, oh, We have the box, we have the home rules, and I am the magisterium who gets to interpret which of the, how to to interpret this. So you may as well just shut up because I'm in charge. So by saying there are three sources of authority, but we're the ultimate interpreters, there's really one source of authority. And you got to buy whatever they say about scripture and tradition. You say, well, okay, this is all interesting, but what's at stake? Well, we talked about Mary. Um, I mean, really, this is going on, that they're dedicating themselves to Mary's immaculate heart. Purgatory. Jesus told the thief, today you'll be with me in paradise. There's no concept of purgatory in the Bible. Sacraments, we, we have communion and, and baptism, but they would say that through the sacraments, the grace of God is distributed to you. I think that's adding works to the gospel. Uh, indulgences, now they corrected some of the abuses, but there are still, uh, the, the church still can distribute grace. And then we'll cover in days ahead, faith alone. We say you're saved by faith alone. They say, no, it's not by faith alone, that you're saved. We have two different Gospels. So you see, this is kind of an important issue. We can't just have uh, the idea that, well, let's all just get along and pretend that we're all on the same page. Now, 
Here's the real heart of the issue. If you were to uh, sit down with a knowledgeable Roman Catholic, they would say this. They would claim, Scripture nowhere teaches sola scriptura. But it does teach Scripture and tradition. Okay? Now, um, all of you good Valley Brookers, you're raised, some of you from little on, born into the church, open your Bibles, we prove things with Scripture, Scripture alone, Scripture alone, Scripture alone, you go off to college. Or you go off just to work. And a Roman, you start, you start teaching something, and a Roman Catholic says, where do you get that? And you show them the Bible. And you go, they go, well, our church teaches differently and you go, well, I don't care, it's in the Bible. And then they say, well, where in the Bible does it say that the Bible alone is the only source of authority? What would you say? In fact, many uh, Protestant pastors have converted to Roman Catholicism in recent days because they don't know how to answer that question. Where does the Bible... Teach sola scriptura. So let's address that first, and then we'll talk about tradition. Okay. Um, now, here's what happens. The, the, the Protestant says, well, let's look at 2 Timothy 3. And the Catholic is already ready to refute this. But listen, the, this is not the argument that, 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 um, that they think I'm going to give. Okay. So here's what it says. All scripture is breathed out by God. And some of your translations say inspired by God. That means that your Bibles are the breath of God. That does not mean that, that when men wrote, they were taking dictation. It means that God's Holy Spirit so superintended the writing process that Paul, being Paul, when he wrote his letter to the Galatians or to the Philippians, it was really him writing. He didn't turn into a robot, but the end result was God's very own word. Okay, All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. Now the Roman Catholic says, yeah, we agree with that. What's the big deal? We believe that Scripture is inspired. We also believe that God superintends the teaching magisterium of the church. Where does it teach sola, sola scriptura? Well, first of all, Scripture is the only thing in Scripture that is said to be breathed out by God. Okay, But verse 17 is the key. So scripture is breathed out by God, it's useful for these things, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Uh, it's the idea of fully equipped. All right? What is it that fully equips you? Scripture. So if you can be fully equipped with scripture, then scripture is sufficient. Um, I, th I think of the analogy, let's say you're going to go on a safari, so you go to Safari Outfitters. Right? And they say, we, <laughs> that's the best I could do. Right? 
And they, they say, we will fully equip you. We, we, we will outfit you for your, your safari. And you get your, your hat and your binoculars and a Jeep, um, even a driver, even a gun. But you're out there, you're out there, no ammo. And they gave you a sandwich, but no water. You're going to die. You're not fully equipped, right? What, what this says is scripture is that which is breathed out by God, and it is what makes you complete and equipped for every good work, okay? Now, Rome says that their traditions, which can develop over time, are just as authoritative, so now let me give you a second verse. Jude, one of Jesus' brothers, wrote this. Beloved, although I'm, I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. Now that's not talking about subjective faith. It's talking about the Christian faith, the content of the, the Christian faith. Contend, fight for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. By the time Jude was writing this, the apostolic era was coming to a close. And the faith was once for all already entrusted to the saints. So, be wary of somebody who comes along 1,500 years later, whether his name is Joseph Smith or a, a pope or a council, and says, oh, here's stuff essential to the faith. Mary ascended into heaven. Where, where, where was that once for all delivered to the saints. Okay? Now, what about their claim that Scripture endorses tradition? 1 Thessalonians 2.15, So then, brothers, Paul says, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letters. Aha! Paul says there are his letters, Scripture, and this spoken oral tradition. Now, here's the question. Are these two separate, distinct lines of tradition where in one batch you've got the, what's written in the Bible and in, in the, the oral tradition, you've got things like all this stuff about Mary that's been passed down orally through the years. Well, I'm going to suggest that if we read this verse in context, the tradition that was both written and spoken is clearly laid out for us. Chapter 2 of Second Thessalonians is about the second coming of Jesus. Now, take a look at this. 
Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Verse 5, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? What things? The things I just wrote. So then he gets to verse 15 and he says, hey, whether you heard me speak them, which I already spoke, I'm telling you that in verse 5, or I wrote them, I just did in verses 1 through 4, hold to that. That's the tradition. To introduce some secret oral tradition that's been passed down through the ages is foreign to the text. The word tradition is used in the next chapter. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. And I won't read the whole thing, but what's the tradition? Verse 10, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. You got to pull your weight. That's what we taught you verbally, and that's what I just wrote. There, there's no secret tradition. In fact, Eric Svensson writes this. In a positive sense, the New Testament writers speak of the apostolic deposit as tradition in such passages as Luke 1, 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 11, 23. 1, so he's got all the lists there, but he says this. Yet in each one of these cases above, the tradition is defined for us. So, yes, Scripture says hold to the tradition, but the tradition is defined for us. To create a separate line of tradition is reading into the word tradition. Now, one last thing. While there are positive commands to hold to the apostolic tradition, tradition is used negatively by Jesus. So, Jesus and his apostles are walking through a wheat field and they're taking the heads of wheat and they're eating them. And they didn't wash their hands the way the elders, the tradition of the elders held to. So they're saying, Jesus, you're not of God. You don't wash your hands the right way. And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written... This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Now he's going to give them an example. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. By the way, we covered that on Wednesday night. Learned a lot about what that means. And whoever reviles his father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, 
whatever you would have gained from me as Corbin, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. So let's say you had some dependent parents. There was a, a way you could say, oh, mom and dad, I, I, would, I would take care of you, but I made a pledge to the temple, and then they could, they could wind it around so they could keep the money and not have to take care of their mom and dad. And Jesus corrects that tradition with what is written, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. Now, here's what's interesting. Many people believe that this tradition that they taught, that the Pharisees were criticizing Jesus over about washing hands, some people said, well, that came orally. It's not written, but it came orally all the way passed down over the years from Moses down to their day. And Jesus says, phooey on that. So here, tradition, religious tradition, authoritative religious tradition coming from the Pharisees, authoritative religious tradition having supposedly been handed down orally from Moses is rebutted by sola Scriptura. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. And forgive us for taking it for granted. Men died to preserve your word, to translate your word. And Luther was willing to risk his life to fight for your word being the sole authority. So Lord, thank you for that event in church history. We do not want to take for granted the fact that we can sit down in a chair today and open your word and read it. So Lord, I pray that as we go over this history, you would give us confidence in your word and more importantly, the discipline to read it, to study it, to apply it, to love it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.